For the past few months, we've been in a sermon series called The Lord's Prayer and Praise, and we just finished the main part of the series, walking through each phrase of this prayer that Jesus taught His disciples. Early on in the series, we said that the first three out of the six petitions are praise-oriented. They recognize who God is as Father, uh, which points to the stunning reality that the King of the universe wants to have this family relationship with us. Then we find that He's the one who dwells in heaven and whose name is unique, unlike any other, so we're to hallow it, we're to make it holy, set it apart, treat it differently. All the more reason for us to seek His kingdom and His will and not our own. And all of that is praise, fully one half of the prayer, before we even get to asking for anything like daily bread or forgiveness or deliverance. So, if praise is the foundation of prayer, then how do we do this? What does it look like, especially when we gather together for worship? That's what these two additional Sundays are about, the Lord's Prayer and praise, not uh, something stuck on the end that has nothing to do with the beginning, but something that flows very naturally from what we've seen already, praise as the foundation of prayer. This morning... I'm going to borrow an outline from a pastor named Mike Cusper in his book, Rhythms of Grace. And the outline is very simply, worship one, two, three. Rather than uh, camping out in one main passage of Scripture, I'm going to read a a few Bible verses as we go along. Uh, So first, worship one, object and author. Worship is about God, which is just about the most logical thing in the world. Worship is about God. Worship, you've heard me say this in the past, worship comes from the old English word worship, which helps us understand the meaning of, of, uh, of worship. If God is the most glorious being, if He is infinite, eternal, perfect in every way, if He is wise and loving, most beautiful, then He really does have greatest worth. And therefore, there's only one logical response from those He created to recognize and affirm God in His perfections, in that glory. Praise Him and adore Him. Worship is about God. It's the most natural thing in the world. And all the reasons God deserves our praise are revealed to us throughout history in His saving acts towards His people who have rebelled against Him. And that reality of sin, in contrast with His holiness, makes Him that much more praiseworthy, worthy of worship. He's revealed it through chosen leaders. He's revealed it through prophets and kings. But ultimately, we know from the Bible, He's revealed that He is most worthy to be praised through His Son, Jesus, and what He accomplished on the cross, and how He walked out of that tomb on the third day. Here's where the first half of the Lord's Prayer has already laid the foundation for this morning and next Sunday. The the fact that God is the object and author of worship is not just one-third of a sermon. In fact, we were standing upon three or four messages in our sermon series that we've already talked about and just reminding ourselves of why worship leads directly into Um, or or why praise leads directly into praying, asking God, interacting with Him in relationship. 
Praise is what we were created for. Praise is how we are most fulfilled, how we find deep peace and satisfaction and contentment as we marvel at who God is, as we enjoy everything about Him. A drama professor uh, wrote that biblical worship is comedic rather than tragic, interacting with a couple of phrases from literature. Um, Biblical worship is comedic and not tragic. A tragic script does not resolve the main tension in the story. I hate tragic stories. I hate tragic movies. It doesn't have to have a sad ending, but the tragic nature from a literature perspective means that, for example, the hero dies and you don't know what happens, or that the ending is incomplete, it's unresolved, it, it leaves you thinking, is it over? Like, what ha- you just got to tell me what happens. You know, what comes next? That's um, indicative of a tragic script. It's frustrating. It's unsatisfying. But in a comedic script, the battle between good and evil is resolved. The tension um, melts away. It's not necessarily just a, a happy ending. And, and the reason this drama professor calls biblical worship comedic is not because it's funny, but that biblical worship reenacts that resolution that we find in the climax of all of history, which is the decisive, once and for all, complete victory of Jesus, the Son, over sin and death through His resurrection. Worship is about God, who is the object of our praise, who is the author of our salvation. Secondly, worship involves two contexts. There's worship scattered and there's worship gathered. Worship scattered recognizes that all of life is lived quorum Deo, that Latin phrase, before the face of God. We, we, we live all of life in His presence, whether we show up in church or not. Worship scattered is very aware of God's purpose in creation, in making all things good and harmonious and beautiful, but worship scattered is also very aware that sin has affected everything. Sin brings corruption and decay, and nothing is as it is supposed to be. Worship scattered looks to God to make all things new, and worship scattered Scattered recognizes that God often uses the worshiper to accomplish His goals of making all things new. So it's not just sitting back and watching Him. It's marveling at His promise to make all things new, and it's asking God, how do you want me to act in your name? How do you want me to be an agent of this renewal, of this restoration? Worship scattered happens when you're on a nature walk. Happens in your living room, over dinner, in your friendships, and in, out in your community, and at work. Everywhere and always, just like Moses instructs the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when he's talking about God's law, he says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, everywhere and always. Stick reminders of worship scattered, that you're living in before the face of God, everywhere and always. All of life is worship in the scattered sense. But I want to focus on worship gathered, the second context 
of worship. From beginning to end, the Bible assumes and it commands the people of God to gather together for the purpose of worship. There is no such thing as a merely private faith, individualized faith apart from community. The the author of Hebrews, for example, writes this in Hebrews chapter 10, um, starting in verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day being a reference to Jesus' return at the end of history. The day of judgment, the day of resurrection, the day when salvation is completed. In Ephesians 2, this is how Paul describes the church. He says, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. There's family language here. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. There there is an absolutely unique dynamic when the people of God come together in worship. And, And these metaphors help us understand different aspects of that unique dynamic. Um, family uh, has this togetherness. There, there's a, there's a, a sense in which things are right when the family gathers together, when the family is celebrating. There's a, a strength of structure and stability that we, uh, we get a picture from with bricks mortared together, you know, not bricks piled on one another, not bricks just collected in, in a heap, but bricks that are sealed, that are supporting one another, all made possible, Paul says, by the same Spirit living in each follower of Jesus Christ. If the mortar is not enough, it's the Spirit keeping things together. Last example, in 1 Corinthians twelve twelve, this is what Paul says, just as a body, talking about the physical body, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And he goes on to say that no part of the body can possibly say to another part of the body, I don't need you. They exist as a unity. There, there are differences in function, in looks, in, um, in location, but each part of the body needs every other part to function in a healthy organism. Individualism makes no sense within the family of God. And isn't it striking that Jesus teaches us, along with His disciples, to pray, not my Father, not give me this day my daily bread, but it's our and us. There's communal language. This is a common prayer that we pray. And and, and that's one of the reasons why we pray it out loud and in unison. It's the prayer of the family. So what's our purpose when we gather for worship in the second context. Here's one biblical example that we find at the end of the book of Joshua. The Israelites have taken possession of the promised land. This is the inheritance that God has promised them. The uh, military campaigns are mostly behind them. There's peace um, at, at hand. And Joshua, both military leader and spiritual shepherd, knows 
that now if complacency and forgetfulness creep in, the deadly disease of unbelief will start to infect the people. And so he gathers the leaders of all the tribes from all across the land to remember and to renew to remember the saving acts of God, how He's intervened in the lives of His people, to remember the promises God has made, and not one of them was forgotten. Every single one of them was kept, we read at the end of Joshua. To remember, and then to renew. It's a covenant renewal ceremony because this, there's this covenant relationship between God and His people. He has made promises, but we are to make uh, promises in return. And so the renewal aspect is... Yes, we affirm that you are God, you are king, we affirm that you have done all these things, and yes, we are going to renew our commitment to that faith and to our obedience to you alone. Remembering and renewing. And an important part of the renewal ceremony is the throwing away of idols. In the ancient times, they they, uh, included literal idols, figurines carved out of of wood or some kind of stone that would be false gods. In our time, they're idols of the heart. In, 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 um, In either context, the idol is a God substitute, something or someone to which we are giving too much worth, undeserving worth, and therefore worth shipping when God alone deserves all of our praise. Church is not a religious or social club. It's not an entertainment venue. It's not even an educational context, primarily. Gathered worship centrally involves the remembering of God's promises, the remembering of God's saving acts, and the logical response of all of God's people to speak back, to sing back, to renew our commitment to Him in our faith and in our obedience, especially in light of the New Testament that shows us very clearly what the old Israelites looked ahead to and didn't quite understand yet. They didn't quite see the fullness of, especially in light of the New Testament that shows us the price the Father paid to bring about our salvation, which was the sacrificing of the, of the life of the Son in our place that we might not have to go to the cross and die the death that we deserve for our sins. If biblical worship is a resounding yes to Jesus as Lord and Savior, then at the same time it's a loud and um, a, a loud and bold no to the competing idols for our hearts, the idols that would make false promises, the idols that would allure our hearts by promising things that they'll never deliver. That's why, as we've been saying in this series, our hearts need to be recalibrated by praise because all too often they're turned aside to longing for things that God does not want us to have or turned aside to good things that we make best things, ultimate things, things we must have in order to be happy. And praise brings us back to true north where we say, no, God, you alone satisfy. All other things lead to death. All other things distract us. All other things rob us of what we were created to most enjoy in intimate fellowship with you.
in this vertical relationship. And then gathered worship strengthens us to go and serve the world as we close every service. Gathered worship strengthens us in our scattered worship back at home, in our communities, at work. In other words, Sunday worship is the foundation and the fuel for Monday through Saturday worship. And then lastly, there's three audiences. Worship one, object and author, God Himself. Worship two, contexts, scattered all of life and gathered when the people of God uniquely come together for the purposes of remembering and renewing. But there's three, worship three, there are three audiences. There really is only one audience. We have to first say that. If we think in these terms, who is this all for? An audience of one. Whose applause is most important? The audience of one. Whose preferences shape what happens here, how we should conduct ourselves? It's the audience of one, only God. His audience is primary above all else. Uh, and, And we'll talk about this more next week with this idea that worship is not a concert hall, but more of a banquet hall. And we might even say it's more of a potluck than a banquet, because in a banquet you might show up as a consumer and you're served and you enjoy what people bring to you. But the potluck is even more biblical because you don't show up empty-handed. You're supposed to bring something and contribute and participate and share. If, so if the guest of honor and the object of worship is God Himself, then the question is, Is he pleased with what you have offered him? That's going to be the theme of next week. Worship as the work of God's people. But there's a second this morning and and secondary audience in worship. If God is above all, then there's also a secondary audience. And it's us, the church, the people of God, those who believe in Jesus and are therefore rescued from our sin because of what He's done in our place. An audience of one, speaking of God, does not mean that there's no place in worship for the people of God to speak to one another, even in the context of worship. Um, Let me give you an example uh, that I chafed at for quite a while. There's one line in, in a song that we sing that's in our repertoire that I've never liked until I began to think in these terms, in terms of the second audience of the church speaking to one another. Um, we sing, I don't know who, who, um, who wrote this, but we sing, how great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. And I've always thought, like, why did they have to throw that in? You know, it's like, how great is our God? Sing with me. Like, this, is, this aside, you know, this whispering, like, come on, you know, um, it, it, it struck me as a little bit performancy. It struck me as extraneous, you know, as a, as a throw-in until I began to uh, be prompted by others like Mike Cosper to think in terms of, no, there's an appropriate audience. It's secondary. It should never supersede the audience of one, God Himself, as the object of our, fa- uh, of our worship. But there's an appropriate element that's mixed in into the seasoning to speak to one another. Um, here, here was my attitude. Maybe you've, you've shared this um, over the years. My, my attitude was, if God is the audience of one, shouldn't everything that we're doing be addressed to Him and to Him alone? 
Um, should we, shouldn't we avoid any singing about God in third person, him, he? And, and certainly shouldn't we avoid talking to and singing to one another because we're not worshiping each other? And that might sound like a really faithful, pure approach to worship, except for the fact that the songbook and worship guide that God gave to His people, which is called the book of Psalms, includes all of these variations. It's inspired. We use that term to say it comes from God. His Holy Spirit carried along these human authors like King David to write down exactly what God wants us to have. And if the songbook of the Bible permits us to speak to one another and call it worship, and to speak about God and call it worship, and of course, speak straight to Him in second-person language, you, then the people of God should consider all of these variations fair game for worship, because God has said it. Here's one example, Psalm 20. David is the author. He's addressing someone else and speaking to God in third-person language, he, him, all throughout the, uh, the, the, um, the psalm, okay, at least for eight of the nine verses. May the Lord answer you when you're in distress. May He send you help from the sanctuary. So David's speaking to another human being. May He give you the desire of your heart. And not until the very last verse does he turn his gaze from horizontal to vertical and say this, Lord... Second person, direct address. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. And because it's an inspired songbook, it's all worship. It's all worship. Then there's the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, telling the Ephesian church to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Another license, if you will, to include, at least in the mix of worship, the horizontal, speaking to one another. So gathered worship must include, not centrally, not be all about, but include us speaking to each other, encouraging each other, exhorting each other with gospel truth, reminding each other, because um, so often Many of us are weak in our faith and struggling with doubt, and, um, and this varies perhaps from week to week and certainly from season to season, and, and there might be a few who are, are strong in their faith, who have walked through what you've walked through, and we need each other. That's part of what grace stories are about, right? It, it's not, and they lived happily ever after stories. We have never had that kind of story, and we never will. A, because it doesn't exist. B, because if a person is deluded into thinking that, they don't get, they don't get to stand here and, 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 and share that because we know it's not true. It's counterintuitive. It, it's not helpful to um, exhorting one another in the people of God to walk by faith, yes, in the midst of struggle and pain and adversity. That's part of what it means to be living out faith in community, in gathered worship. The third audience is the world. third audience is the world. Here's an interesting chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 14. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is giving uh, the church instructions for worship. 
And twice at the, in the last half of 1 Corinthians 14, he tells the church to consider what a seeker, inquirer, or unbeliever is going to think when they're in worship, when they come to church, if you will. And that's pretty striking that, that Paul would say uh, not only that he expects these categories, seeker, inquirer, unbeliever, those are the words that are in our translation, not only that the Apostle Paul expects them to be present, watching and listening, but also, this is the surprising part, that the church should adapt some of its practices in light of their presence. Some churches would say, no, 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 you know, not, we do not consider at all what non-Christians care, what they're thinking, uh, how they react. We do what we do because we're the people of God. And 1 Corinthians 14 says, no, not at all. Now, the opposite end of the spectrum is not better to say everything that we do is going to be, quote-unquote, this is not what this always means, but seeker-friendly. You know, everything is going to be filtered through the, the eyes, the perspective of a person who doesn't believe, because we don't want anything to be unpalatable. We don't want to offend. We, we want everything to be accessible to the person of unbelief, and, and we don't go to that extreme either. Something in the middle is what Paul is advocating for, even urging, to consider what a seeker, inquirer, unbeliever is going to think when they walk into your worship service, and for the church to adapt some of its practices in light of that presence. Here's an exa- another example from the Psalms of the world as an audience of worship. Psalm 105. Um, at the very beginning, this is, uh, this is what we find. Give praise to the Lord, proclaim His name, make known among the nations what He has done, sing to Him, sing praise to Him, tell of all His wonderful acts. Just the first couple of verses. And the verse I underlined is, is a, a call to engage in missions. Um, if we ask this question, we, we connect it with the world as an audience of worship. How do you make God known among the nations? Obviously, you can go as a missionary. Obviously, your, your church or an agency can send you, and you make known among the nations what God has done. But we would say um, mission and evangelism should happen here within the church of Jesus Christ just as much. And, and, and how does that happen? How do we make known among the nations? By praising Him, part of which involves song. Praise is not limited to musical worship, but it certainly central involves that. By praising Him in song and also by telling other people about Him. Again, our grace stories are a way we do that. Testimony. Here's my struggle, and here's how faith in God and His promises have brought healing to me. Not complete. I still need more, but that's, how, that's one means we use to make known among the nations what He has done. We share, and we assume that the world is the third audience, listening in, overhearing what we're saying in worship. Well, let me end with this word, because I know over the years and from some personal ac- interactions with uh, some of you that... Um, we regularly have a, a, a good number of folks who would self-identify with one of those phrases, or at least a synonym of seeker, inquirer, unbeliever. Some of you say, I don't believe. 
but I'm willing to be here listening. Some of you say, I think I do, but I'm still trying to figure things out and I want to ask questions and this or that is really holding me back. Um, You're spoken about in 1 Corinthians 14 with sensitivity. Paul is saying we should be um, considering your uh, approach. And, And here's my encouragement. I want to encourage you to continue to eavesdrop on what the people of God are doing in worship. Uh, please peek in all you want on this drama as we reenact the salvation story, as we remember God's promises and remember the way He has intervened in, in history to save His people, and as we renew our faith and our commitment of obedience to Him. You should not stick around because the people are nice or because the music is great, or because the guy standing here occasionally has interesting things to say. None of those reasons are good enough um, motivations to give your life to this king, or even to waste your Sunday morning. You could be doing something more productive, unless these things are true. You should only stick around because something is stirring your heart to realize that This one true God has promised to make all things new. And that includes healing and renovating your heart in a broken world with pains and frustrations and sufferings and and, um, unreconciled relationships because this resurrection life is offered to you by faith in the Son, Jesus. And so we would say watch and listen from the back row or sit here in the front. Sit back or ask questions. Passively soak things in or actively come and talk to me. Talk to Josh. Grab somebody and ask them if they can explain things to you. But our greatest prayer is that you would be drawn more and more into this intimate relationship of family, that you would call God your Father, that you would know that He declares you by faith to be a son or a daughter, and that you would know above all else that He is alone worthy to be praised. Let's pray. Lord, You've given us every reason to worship You. You've given us none to turn it aside to another. You've given us none to withhold it because of unfaithfulness or poor character or uh, any other weakness because you are perfect. You are holy. There is no other. You are the one enthroned in heaven and your kingdom, whether we pray it or not, will come because you are sovereign, almighty, and your will, whether we submit to it or not, will be done. Father, Overwhelm our hearts with these stunning realities of the gospel that we might be led to, on our knees, worship you, adore you, give you everything that you deserve, and know that you call us into your family through faith in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.